Welcome to episode 12 of Once Upon a Lifetime. Welcome back to our seventh episode covering Eunice Kennedy Shriver. Our last two episodes ended with assassinations. So this one we have promised no assassinations whatsoever, not even a little one. We are picking up after Bobby Kennedy's death. Lyndon B. Johnson is president and he has been bringing Sarge, Eunice's husband, into the fold. So Johnson has tapped Sarge to be ambassador to France and Sarge wants to do this because it is going to help to end the Vietnam War, which he has been fighting against. And Eunice wants him to do it because she remembers how wonderful it was to be an ambassador's kid in England. So they fly back to Paris after Bobby's death. And Eunice, what do you think she does? What is the first thing Eunice does? Oh, gosh. Is this where she, like, packed all of the equipment like the PE equipment that she was going to use to teach you find some children to host Olympics okay no she knew she was going to find them she knew so she brings things with her like measuring tapes you know big long ones to measure out fields yes right all these obstacles yes set up obstacle races right they're like so Mrs. Shriver what will you be taking with you she's like oh I don't know you know sports equipment pull up bars just yeah Definitely. She brings all this stuff yes. over, and in the ambassadorial residence in Paris, she turns the foyer into like a day camp for. Well, it's an obstacle ins- course. It's yes. a beautiful, like marble floors, gorgeous foyer with a couple of like car tires strategically placed <laughs> so that they can like jump through or run around. I don't. Yep, know. and she gets in touch with local institutions that have mentally disabled people and she brings them into her house every yeah. day and they have they store their bikes by the guard shack they have like a trampoline i mean mitten, you should have dogs. seen the exodus <laughs> there was such an exodus of staff oh people, yeah the french people were like what the no. first wave of staff left in a half like they were just like oh no this is outrageous right. they were not this gonna crazy do american <laughs> this is paris we don't do this yeah yeah and her biggest thing she does in france is that she basically starts volunteerism it is not a thing in france it's really in fact it's an anti thing they will not volunteer because the unions find it scary to have people doing work for free that because they could it, be getting paid for. Right. So they're anti any volunteerism. She tries to get French high schoolers to come and volunteer at the institutions and help with give swimming lessons, all the, you know, all the things that Eunice does with the mentally disabled. And they, the French people will not allow it. So then she ships over this whole parcel of American teenagers for their spring break, has them help out for a week in the institutions, and all the people are like, oh well, this isn't so bad. It's really kind of nice to have a, another set of hands around here. Right. And so it becomes a thing. It, the French people start volunteering. It, it's really a whole cultural mm-hmm. transplant that she does, which right. is sort of huge. And I think what's helpful to her is, I did not know this, but the de Gaulle's had a daughter, Anne, who had Down syndrome. And, you know, I they had given her the best of care at home and were really active with her but 
I think she really had strings pulled and was able to pull a lot of this off because he was definitely in favor of this movement that she's trying to start. That's right. And another funny Paris anecdote was, um, Dave, well, not, I don't know if it's funny, but David Mixner was uh, an anti-Vietnam War activist who had gotten beaten up by the cops for an anti-war protest. And he was just on vacation in Paris, I believe. And he was shocked. He gets this invitation, come to the ambassador's house. And he's like, why? You know, I mean, actually kind of nervous. You know, what, like, what? what? What do you want me for? And he shows up. And the one that night, there's a whole bunch of people over. But the most kind of important guest is Coretta Scott King. Wow. Hmm. So they have dinner and the conversation's wonderful. And he says, you know, if you were there, you were expected to participate. And Coretta was the the star of the night. You know, she was really holding court kind of. And they end the night holding hands around the piano singing, We Shall Overcome. Mm-hmm. Here you are in Paris. That's so right. great. <laughs> yeah. And this was the crazy thing. They're in Hyannisport one summer and she runs into him. This one, this guy, David Mixner, on the street. She runs into him, and he's like, "Oh, hi! I'm sure you don't remember me." And she goes, "Oh, I know you. You were at our home for dinner in Paris." Twenty years later, that's great. Yeah, so that, people mattered to her. It wasn't just the chaos. And she and Sarge had this household where they just loved people. They loved to have conversations and ideas, and they were just like insatiably curious about what people were thinking and what was happening in the world around them. So right. it's really, really neat. But they kind of run their course in yeah. Paris. They end up resigning. Um, and, you know, I mean, they just can't accomplish it. They decide that we are not accomplishing that much here. In the meantime, Joe has died. So they had flown home for Joe's funeral. And when they come home after Paris... Sarge campaigns for all these Democrats all over the country. He he goes to 32 different states campaigning for the for Democrats that year. And Eunice begins to respond to the changing abortion laws. So at this time in history, it's very possible, kind of unlike today, you could be opposed to abortion and be on the left side of the aisle in all all things. Right. Um, the lines had not been drawn as boldly as they are now. Uh, this is when it was still possible to have a conversation uh, yes. about these issues without people automatically getting kind of entrenched. This was a discussion that was actually happening and people were really sharing their thoughts. Right. Um, conclusions were not weren't yet, made yet. No. I mean, some people had conclusions, but I mean, a lot of a lot of people did not. It was really... It was the beginning of the issue. Yes. Right. It was a dialogue. Yeah. And it was finally open. Like so many things were beginning to be openly discussed and openly addressed. Right. So, and so some people had been campaigning for, for years, for 10 a long years. time to even have this on the table. So these right. people already knew. But Those like the general knew, but... public had not been having this conversation till now. Right. It's 1970, 71 is when we're talking. She's 50, 49 and 50 years old during this segment. The argument against abortion from the left at the time was that abortion was a human rights issue, just like capital punishment, euthanasia, the war in Vietnam. It made a lot of sense to people on the left to also advocate against abortion. That made sense in their understanding of human rights. A lot of the civil rights warriors were also anti-abortion. A lot of the civil rights movement had been based out of churches. And so you have a lot of religious people who 
are also anti-abortion. So she has not left at this point in time. She has not left her company. She's not different than the people around her. They have similar values and it's not unusual to be anti-abortion. Right. And yet she's a leftist. not she's not alone in her views at this point within her party. That's right. Within her party and just her kind of way of thinking. Her social circles are very liberal, but she's still not alone in her instinct that abortion is wrong. These people, including the Shrivers, argued that the answer to unwanted pregnancies was not abortion, but was wider government support for the mother. Uh, They wanted to streamline adoption processes so that it was easier. And they wanted federally funded child care. So they had answers to the problem of unwanted abortions or unwanted pregnancies, they thought. It just wasn't, abortion was not one of those options. And this perspective for her was very, very much tied to her longstanding advocacy for mentally disabled people. She She felt they were especially vulnerable to this movement, that these diagnoses and, and the availability would basically make them again, in, in, in danger of not existing. She had deeply believed that they had a right to a good life. She'd been fighting for a better life. And she saw that with the advent of amniocentesis testing, that you would be able to predict whether a child had certain mental disabilities and that then they would be aborted. And And so for her, It just went against everything that she had been trying to do all her life. Right. I think she says that she has a fear that this legislation is going to outpace the science, like the advances in science that could help these mothers, help these children. And that if if you won't, if you can kind of get rid of the problem some other way, then we'll never solve the root problem scientifically. Right. That we'll never figure out what it is that's calling, causing mental disabilities and actually solve the problem if we just get rid of the problem by terminating right. these pregnancies. She also was drawing connections in her own mind between the eugenics movement, which had been seen through Nazi experimentation and sterilization of undesirables. And that had been so detrimental to the mentally disabled community and to the impoverished minority community. So she's worried. She's saying she's in her mind. She's thinking we've already seen how when you go down this road, there are vulnerable communities of people Mm -hmm. that are going to be hit worse Mm -hmm. than others. So Eunice wanted to understand more. She really needed to kind of discover the ethical answers to this problem. So she knew what she believed, but she wanted to kind of explore this issue further. And so she begins to study ethics. She connects with a professor who has like telephone courses with her. She's kind of like online schooling. She's she's a Harvard professor of ethics. And she talks to him once a week. Mm -hmm. for months right about ethical issues and she she really sees that it's important for the health of a society to care for the weak and the powerless and so for her it's a matter of duty to protect all 
aspects of life from birth to, you know, in disability, in incarceration, in whatever challenges that a person has to them from like birth to natural death, she feels frail. She's also concerned with, you know, elderly, right, right, take care of themselves. And so basically, what she's kind of dialing into is this new idea of bioethics hadn't really been explored. It's kind of a, a, a thing that's just it's waiting to happen. It's waiting to happen. All of a sudden, there. medical technology is outpacing uh, philosophical understanding. So she ends up kind of putting together these, I guess you could call them think tanks. It's mm-hmm. these groups of people who are dealing with bioethical issues. Um, and it's during one of these conferences that she runs. And I just want to give a warning here. This is a disturbing story that I'm about to share if And it has to do with um, infant death. During one of these bioethic conferences, there's a case discussed about the death of a mentally disabled infant born at Johns Hopkins. After the baby was born, the doctor followed the wishes of the parents and did not perform a simple surgery that could have saved the life of the baby. So this baby, was was it Down syndrome? It was like a a simple... It it was a Down syndrome baby, yes. And it was going to be kind of a bowel obstruction surgery. It was going to be a a pretty simple thing to fix. The parents said they refused to raise a child with Down syndrome, and they did not want the doctor to do the surgery. So the doctor placed the baby in a bassinet in a dark corner of the nursery and let it starve to death. This took days and days. It took 15 days. days. (sighs) And this was not an isolated case. This was the kind of thing that was happening. It actually was not even illegal until 1984. So this was happening. These kind of things were happening. Um, And Eunice could see that there remained a tendency to treat the mentally disabled as less than human, in spite of everything she'd seen, Special Olympics and... Mm -hmm. All in Camp Shriver and all the work she'd been doing with right. legislation to take care of these kids and get them into educational programs. I mean, she did so much work, but she knew there's still this huge uphill battle. And so this idea that the mentally disabled are less than human lined up directly for her with the idea that, that the fetus is less than human. For her, it was a logical jump and it made sense to her. That in both cases, the vulnerable deserved protection. Absolutely. And I mean, these issues were constantly being discussed in her household. It was definitely a dinnertime discussion. This one Harvard medical professor wrote in 1968, There is no reason to feel guilty about putting a Down syndrome baby away whether it's put away in the sense of, a, of hidden in a sanatorium or in a more responsible, lethal sense. It is sad, yes, dreadful, but it carries no guilt. True guilt arises only from an offense against a person, and a Downs is not a person. So she, this is what she thought she was fighting. Right, and that's, that's not the road that she wants to have society... No. Travel. So in, in a speech she gave about this case, she said, Now, too late, that surgeon has discovered that several foster families would have been willing, even eager, to give that child a home. 
Now, too late, that surgeon says that if he had known this at the time, he would never have acceded to the parents' wishes. Now, too late, he agrees that a life could have been saved. Not the life of a totally normal child, perhaps, but a good life, a happy life, a life that no one had any right to take away. So she's very aware that abortion is a threat to the whole mentally disabled community. And she had foresight. Because at this point in time, 90% of Down syndrome children are aborted. And she believed deeply that this would be a terrible loss to the world, that the world would be a poorer place for that loss. She also thought it would be the poorer communities, the minority communities that would be channeled towards abortions rather than able to get significant help through financial aid, work programs, and educational programs. And in fact, in kind of an interesting coalescing of ideas, the black power advocates agreed with her. They predicted a black genocide if abortion rights were procured. Right. So she had some unlikely allies. Yes. Interesting. And since she and Sarge had for such a long time been so heavily involved in work with poor communities and delinquent juveniles, female prisoners, she's it's not like she's blind to the problems that Mm. they encounter. She knows up close and personal more than most, in fact. So she simultaneously starts funding assistance programs all over the country for women in pregnancies that are difficult and also donated money to universities to fund chairs of bioethics. So she really is giving money both in kind of the intellectual ideas marketplace and also the practical I'm going to get you some diapers and some formula for your child right right. she wasn't just about ideas she backed it up with the action which she did she she is utterly um consistent her ethic is consistent so in a letter to her son Bobby who was 16 at the time she says I do not say that the fetus is a completely developed person but neither is a baby one-year-old neither is a boy of five The point is that the fetus has all the ingredients of human life from the moment of conception on, and it is merely a question of development, not essence, that changes. Why should a doctor be permitted to do an abortion at 24 weeks, yet if the baby is born at 28 weeks and the doctor kills it, he's up for murder? She and Sarge remain anti-abortion for the duration. They don't ever waver on that score. Um, They're actually supporters of Democrats for Life, kind of early investors in Democrats for Life and Feminists for Life and the Susan B. Anthony list, all of which are groups that try to get anti-abortion advocates into different parts of government. So it's interesting because she and Ted start out at the same point, but they diverge over the years. He goes with the party platform. And he has an unblemished pro-abortion voting record. And she still campaigns for him. She still goes out and stumps for him. Mm-hmm. And when asked what are what what is what are Ted's abortion views, she'll say, he and I disagree. These are what his views are. So in right. some ways, she never loses hope that she can still be in her party. And have the belief system she has. She's able to have dialogue with people in a way that it would be great if if issues can really be addressed and discussed. Yeah, and she's 
she has she's always bringing especially back back then but she was always bringing people together to discuss these issues openly she was not uh there wasn't really much of an axe to grind for a long time even though she was stridently anti-abortion she was a person who could conceive of other people's ideas also right during this period of time right after her dad's death she begins the work of reintegrating rosemary back into the family she goes and she gets her brings her on vacations with the family after this um eunice's children do not know the whole story about rosie her son anthony says it was not something we discussed we grew up with people with disabilities all around us and she was just another disabled person we happened to have in our family there's rosemary and there's johnny and there's jimmy and they're all in the backyard so she's just around after this quite a bit in 1972, the kids at Hyannisport are known as the HPTs. Oh, yes. The Hyannisport Terrors. And <laughs> Bobby says something like, you know, you give a bunch of teenagers keys to the boats and... Unlimited fuel. And- unlimited fuel and then a lot of freedom because the parents are in and out all the time. Right. And bad things are going to happen. So... Bobby, along with a couple of his cousins and friends, get gets arrested for marijuana possession. Oh dear! And Bobby feels so bad. He, you know, he let his parents down. Um, Pat's son actually says, "My aunt Eunice yanked Bobby away from us before you could say straight and narrow." <laughs> so that's it. I mean, Bobby is not allowed to hang out with those people anymore. But right. there's no huge come down there's no like huge amount of lectures or no, punishments they don't keep coal on his head or whatever you know there's no there's just... this faith that sergeant Eunice have in their kids that you're gonna do the right thing everyone's gonna make mistakes but right. you you're a shriver and you're gonna get back on track mm-hmm. on the occasion of the roe versus wade decision she immediately gives three hundred thousand dollars to life support centers which give pregnant teenagers comprehensive medical care and academic support so immediately she just starts funneling a lot of the kennedy foundation money into these care centers for pregnant teenagers and other crisis pregnancies she never really reconciles herself to the party's decision to adopt a pro-choice platform but she also is not taking to the streets no and actually it's kind of dangerous when she takes to the streets because she is not a great driver true that's kind of legendary in dc i kind of love the story of where she's she's not noticing speed limits she doesn't follow traffic signs she parks wherever she wants to park her car be it on the grass or on the sidewalk and She'll just kind of walk right in the door. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Up to your senator or oh, whoever whoever she's going to kind of want to talk to that day. And um, she does this great power move of not sitting in a chair when she's going to go meet with a senator or yeah. a congressman. She kind of leans on the desk and looks him right in the eye and tells him, this is what we're going to do. That's right. She's got him in, a, in her sights. She is laser, laser yeah. focused. But at the same time, she is like the most ragged person alive. At this point, you've got Carter is now president. Right. Jimmy Carter is president. And Califano is the secretary of health and human services. So Eunice is trying to work with him a lot on all of her initiatives. You know, she's forever lobbying for the pro-mentally <laughs> disabled work. And 
they go to the same daily mass in Georgetown at Holy Trinity Church in Georgetown, Califano and Eunice. And he says he always would walk in and he'd see this homeless woman in the back pew. She would have this wild hair. Her coat would be half on. She'd be surrounded by all of these bags, these overstuffed bags of papers <laughs> just falling out all over and just all these like articles surrounding her. Uh-huh. And then he'd walk up and he'd realize it was Eunice Kennedy. There she was. Yep. Yep, she's just, just such a mess, but she's in. so effective. It's really crazy. Um, she's actually working with him hard to keep abortion funding out of the Adolescent Health Services and Pregnancy Prevention and Care Act of 1978, which is quite a mouthful. But oh. she works for years on this. And then at the very last minute, they tried to slip in funding for abortions into the bill. And she gets on the phone with him and she's screaming into the phone. I certainly would not have worked on this bill for three years under the assumption that abortion services would be provided under this bill. Oh, gosh. And it it ends up not being included in the bill. I mean, the woman, the woman has power. Um, Yes, she would have her whole lobbying method Mm -hmm. was, they said, to race down Pennsylvania Avenue, ignoring speed limits, parking on the grass or on the sidewalk, wherever, and then just marching in, sitting on that desk, staring eye to eye. I love it. But she would always be out of there within 15 minutes because she told her aide, these are these are busy people. So right. she had, a, like, this weird disrespect slash like, respect. That was her sense of decorum. Like, I'm just going to blow in here like a tornado, but I won't take up too much of your time. I'm just going to get right. my say out. And, you know, if you leave quickly, they don't have time to say no. Right. It's very smart. Right. Um, she was, at this point, Orrin Hatch is a Republican, and he works a lot with Ted Kennedy, a Democrat, on a whole bunch of different things. They tried to work together. They had a good kind of relationship to cross the aisle and work together on certain legislation. And when Hatch wanted Ted to do more for him, he'd say, careful, I'm going to see Eunice. And Ted would say, no, 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 don't, don't do that. <laughs> she's oh, just gosh. a force you know she is she is oh here's where it is that bob bobby is a freshman yes. at yale says mom i don't have anything to talk to these boys about here you never talked to the table at dinner about the kinds of subjects grandma talked about the war politics etc i only have three subjects abortion the fetus and pregnant teenagers especially 13 year old pregnant teenagers oh gosh single-minded Definitely. just a single-minded kind of person yeah yeah but this also got weird. She had this sort of ability to mm-hmm. only see the good yeah. in her family. A kind of tunnel vision. Um, a, a Definitely. Profoundly like... <laughs> blind eye to... She excused people's failures. Like, I think that the inexcusable thing for her would be like apathy and laziness. Those things she's not going to tolerate. But, you know the odd affair having drug taking chapaquitic happening thing exactly she's willing to kind of say oh well yeah she just not 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 even oh well but just like okay what's the next thing like yeah, how, she just what are we going to do does not next? acknowledge it like right right so so ted has had some issues he's campaigning again and without getting too deeply into this Ted has has left a party and it's presumed that he's had too much to drink and he's driving in a car and he has a passenger with him 
the car goes off the road and into the water and um and he he frees himself and he doesn't free her now it he says now that he didn't know that she was in the car that she had gone in there during the party to take a nap and he didn't know she was a passenger but I, I don't know. We, we don't really know. He, he leaves the car and he goes home soaking wet. And it's many, many hours later that authorities are summoned and, um, and the car is retrieved from, from the water and, and this poor woman is found. And so it's just a bad, bad situation. It's very, it's very scandalous. He's overall a major partier just in general and so there's reports all the time this is the worst right but there's many reports of bad behavior um anyway she just has this blind eye to these things but it's not like she ignores people's struggles though like she can overlook this failing or not maybe not overlook but just like see other good in you patrick kennedy is remembering that when his mother joan ted's wife Right, his first wife, she had just such a tremendous struggle with alcoholism. And it just it took a toll on everybody. And there were members of the family and friends who kind of turned turned away from the problem, didn't want to acknowledge it, or maybe just ignored it. And Eunice just pushed up her sleeves and went right in and helped them when they needed it the most. And she just did not kind of leave them to to struggle alone yeah that's true yeah so it's an interesting combination i i don't know if it was just unseemly to discuss things with the children so maybe if the kids you know maybe she was discussing it with other people but she um i don't know it was not public if, if it was the family though like it was sacred gloria swanson is finally wanting to write about her relationship with joe years and years and years ago and Eunice is blocking that. No way. Um, there's a JFK bio in the works called Reckless Youth. And no, Eunice does not want her brother's legacy to be touched. She's not going to have that either. And um, I think that Maria Shriver's understanding that this, like what looks like denial, is kind of self-protective for Eunice, that she really wants to preserve the integrity of the people that matter the most to her. Yeah. Even and, if and they can't do it themselves. I do think Maria says something about, like, she has to. That there's yes. almost like a compulsion. Right. You I know, think... honestly, they were such big failures in the moral realm that right. was so important to Eunice. She's so religious. This isn't like... It does matter, but she's not... I don't think she's going to cast that stone in Well, a she's way. not judgmental. Everybody says she right. doesn't have a judgmental bone in her body. She's deeply religious, but she's not judgmental about moral things. But you would imagine that they would be important to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just a little hard to explain. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it, But it might it have is. just been a different time. She did get her hands dirty whenever she was able to helping people out definitely she really was the the aunt who showed up to all of the kids issues sure if if you were in court or in jail you know aunt eunice was going to show up and probably take you by the scruff and then just roll up her sleeves and and get down to business but i think the one time she lets that mask or not really a mask but she really lets it um what she's feeling show is when she says you know we're so damn good at taking care of everybody else's problems but we're absolutely lousy taking care of our own she does say that to one of her nephews when he's in trouble Mm. 
So yeah, there's some acknowledgement of it. Um, she's also just such a whirlwind, as we know, that I think she just didn't dwell on stuff. It just, things happened and she just, like, who has time to think about that right. when the world must be changed? Um, she, which she, brings she me does. to the other kind of odd thing about her is that she's with her drive. At one point, she goes through 21 assistants in four years. <sighs> That's a new assistant every three months. <laughs> right. I mean, she just, mm-hmm. she will drive people crazy because she will. not only is she impatient and kind of tyrannical and sometimes just doesn't even make sense, like what she wants, right? what she values just really does not even make sense to people. But she also is so scattered and her agenda is so full that people cannot keep pace. They cannot keep up with her. No, they, they rearrange their social lives and their their hobbies. Like the, the one aide who used to go jogging, Eunice is frustrated. She can't reach him on the phone. So he's like, okay, I guess I'll just get a treadmill and jog at home by the phone. That's which, right. which she does. You know, people give up going on vacations. Like they know that they need to be available to her. I mean, she like twins. Is- for seven. Meryl Streep in Devil Wears Prada. Oh, yeah. Except a lot messier. <laughs> well, and with insomnia, the, yes. the part that is crazy is that she'll call any time during the middle of the night or early in the morning with thoughts and questions and things that, you know, and I've heard that Martha Stewart is kind of like that, too, which does not surprise me. Right. There's a certain madness. To there the is. Kind of. Um, at one point, she sees a table. That she wants to buy a dining room table. She sees it in an mm-hmm. antique store. She doesn't know where in the city it is. She doesn't know what store it is. Certainly, I think she says, "Oh, this street the other day," and uh, yesterday I saw it on such and such street. Right. And, she and- says this to an aide. So the aide has to just go into D.C. and start looking in antique stores for a table that Eunice describes to her. Vaguely. Vaguely. And she's, (laughs) but she finds it and she's like overjoyed. She's like, man, I'm good. I'm so good. Right. And then she comes back and Eunice is irate with her because it took her the whole afternoon. And she thinks it was like such a a waste waste. of time. How dare you waste my time like this? But. So she's very hard to work with. I My other favorite example of this is um, she says to one assistant, go and get those papers for my car. And the assistant says, well, what does your car look like and where is it? And she says, you'll figure it out. <laughs> so she has to just go. She goes into this multi-level parking garage and she's like looking for the attendant to see which is the reserved spot. You know, where does Eunice Shriver park her car? Right. And she can't find an attendant anywhere. And then she comes upon a car in one of the driving lanes like mm-hmm. the travel lanes with the door wide open yeah and she's like i guess this is the car and so <laughs> she gets the papers out goes back gives the papers and then quits she's oh, like like this is madness i cannot work this way so i mean she is a full steam ahead very demanding expecting you to you know have the assignment completed before she's even finished telling you what the whole thing is um definitely but then on the other hand because that's not the whole story she could be very encouraging to people when they were frustrated by say the slowness of social progress she would say people see someone who's paralyzed and can move only his little finger and they think that is so sad but god doesn't look at it that way he thinks, are you doing everything you can with that little finger? She had one lady who had a disabled child come to her and say, 
I want I went to go buy gifts for my 12 year old and I went down to the toy store and I was in the aisle of toys for three-year-olds and I realized no he can't do these things yet so then I had to go down an aisle to the toys for the 12 month olds and I thought he can't do this either and then she started to cry and Eunice said no you can't think of it that way you have to turn that around and you have to start with what can he do right so she's in some ways she's very encouraging and very affirming oh if you were disabled she had every amount of of mercy and patience and understanding and encouragement. But if she saw that you were fully able and choosing not to do something like that, it was a choice or a matter of apathy. She had no time for that at all. True. She also for all her scatteredness and her busyness, you know, if she was in a meeting, and one of her adult kids called her, she would leave the meeting and take the call, no matter what. I mean, she was very available Mm -hmm. for the people she thought needed her the most. Absolutely. Real people are never simple. And I think I'll have to call this episode Contradictions and Consistencies. Thank you for joining us. This is our second to last episode. So next week we will be releasing our final episode on Eunice Kennedy Shriver. Please join us at www.onceuponalifetimepodcast.com or at our Facebook group, Thank you to Evan Cresta for mixing and editing this episode down. And we'll see you next time on Once Upon a Lifetime. Mm-hmm.